Hello everyone, you're listening to Night's History Cast, where we have conversations about history. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Central Florida's History Department. For this podcast, I had the pleasure of talking with Dr. Julian Chambliss, who is a professor of English with an appointment in history and the Val Berryman Curator of History at the MSU Museum at Michigan State University. He's also the curator of the 2020 to 2024 Zora Festival Afrofuturism Conference Cycle, which is what we mainly discussed in this podcast episode. We also talked a little bit about his his experiences with podcasts as he produced and co-hosted two podcast shows, Every Tongue Gotta Confess podcast and the Reframing History podcast. So it was pretty cool having a my fellow guest um, with experience in this in this medium and I got to pick his brain about the process and the value of it. So that was pretty cool. Then we ended the podcast talking about his work in comic studies and how it mirrors U.S. society, which I find absolutely fascinating because anybody that knows me personally, uh, I love comic books. I love specifically Marvel comics and the MCU and not just for, you know, the things on the on the superficial, but you know, the deeper themes and layers behind the characters and stories. And, and I'm all I'm all for it. And, you know, I had to I just had to pick his brain about that. I had to. But that's basically what this podcast offers. So from Afrofuturism to his work on podcasts, so a little bit about his comics, it kind of it's pretty comprehensive. So stick around, stick through the whole listening. I promise it will be worth your while. Enough of me talking. Enjoy the podcast and cue that music. Hello, everyone. This is Sebastian Garcia from Night's History Cast, and I have the pleasure of talking with Dr. Julian Chambliss. Dr. Julian Chambliss is a professor of English with an appointment in history and the Val Berryman Curator of History at the MSU Museum at Michigan State University. In addition, he is a core participant in the MSU College of Arts and Letters Consortium for Critical Diversity in a Digital Age Research, CDAR for short. His research interests focus on race, culture, and power in real and imagined urban spaces. He is an interdisciplinary scholar who has designed museums, curated art shows, and created public history projects that trace community, ideology, and power in the United States. He's also the curator of the 2020-2024 Zora Festival Afrofuturism Conference Cycle, which is what we'll be mainly discussing in this podcast episode with a specific focus to, of course, this year's event. He has also produced and ran a couple of podcast shows himself, which we'll talk a little bit about at the end of the episode because, you know, just wanted to mention that now since uh, I finally have a fellow guest that has experience with the mics and headsets on. So it's pretty cool. First off, congratulations, Dr. Chambliss, on another successful Zora Festival Afrofuturism Academic Conference. How are you feeling today? I'm oh, pretty good. Thanks a lot. All right. So since... We could all be on the same page. My questions are a mix of research that I did prior to attending yesterday's event and also, you know, notes that I took during the event yesterday. First question that I want to start off with so we could set the stage for our listeners so they could better understand and appreciate the conversations we'll be having. So can you explain to us what is Afrofuturism? Sure. Afrofuturism is a cultural aesthetic movement that brings together elements of art, technology, and liberation to offer a kind of Afro Afrocentric vision of the future. Uh, that definition 
it, you know, kind of covers lots of like variation of definitions, but probably the easiest way to think about it is the intersection between speculation and liberation rooted in an Afro-African diasporic perspective that seeks to decolonize and promote a more equitable future, right? So it doesn't necessarily, you know, technology is a very particular point in Afrofuturism because the term was coined in the 1990s and really is attached to the sort of transformation associated with Web 1.0. But because we're really talking about a practice of Black people speculating, really any moment in history since the age of discovery where Black people are speculating towards freedom can be considered Afrofuturist. And, and the technologies available to them are the technologies they're going to use. So oratory in the 19th century or writing, you know, sort of you know, escape slave narratives are, <laughs> that's the technology available, mm-hmm. that's the technology they're using. Right. Uh so it it doesn't necessarily have to be like cyborgs, right? <laughs> so I always like to point that out. Yeah, no, that I think that's a good like way to describe it because I feel like a lot of people probably just think of the technology aspect, but it's rooted within the broader history of the African diaspora. So I'm three years late to this party in the sense of you know the cycle. <laughs> I didn't attend the 2020, 21, or 22 um, events, but I'm glad I finally was able to attend. Um, yesterday's event this year's did the zora festival afrofuturism academic conference begin in 2020 meaning were you the first curator to observe this grand event or was this event happening in some form prior to 2020 i learned yesterday in the conference that the outdoor festival has been going on for 34 to 35 years now but the cycle where did that come from yeah the academic component has been going since the festival's been going so it's been going for 35 years okay they plan the festival in five-year cycles. So uh, there's a nationally national planner board, which I, technically I'm on the national planning board. But that group sort of comes together and ideates on like what's going to be the theme for the next five years. And then in that five years, that, that when they're designing the programming for the festival at, at large, they're really sort of thinking about, okay, this is our, this is our theme. And so back in 20... Probably 2018, and I'm on the the local academics committee because I used to work at Rollins College, which is a small large college here in Central Florida. Uh, so I've been on the academics thing, and, and now I'm sort of like on both. And so in about yeah 2018, I suggested Afrofuturism as a theme, mm-hmm. and at the time they were like, "What is that?" And I'm like, "Trust me, this works really well with Sonia Hurston. It works really, really well with like the goals that you have for celebrating humanity, sort of talking about Black culture." Mm-hmm. And you know, to their credit, they're like, "Tell me more." Oh right. yeah, okay, yeah, let's do that. And then you know, of course, you know, Black Panther had just come out. Right. And they're like, is that like that Black Panther stuff? Yeah. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. like that Black Panther <laughs> stuff. But of course, you know, with the curating, it, I really try to divide it into you know these sort of spheres because you know, at some level, Afrofuturism is epistemology. It's a knowledge. So the first year, sort of like. What is Afrofuturism? It's really sort of asking, you know, kind of literary, like where where does the term come from? Like you know, what what, is, what does it mean to be like black speculative black black speculation and literature? And then the second year was like the sound of Afrofuturism, mm-hmm. and then like what is the vision of Afrofuturism? And like this year, what is the spirit of Afrofuturism? I always think of it like as a curating thing. I always think of it as like I'm asking myself a question, mm-hmm. and then I'm programming an answer, right? But when they you know publish what the theme is, they always <laughs> They, they move it away from a question because they feel like, well, that will make people uneasy. 
I feel like, 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 like if you say, hey, what's, what is Afrofuturism? They have, well, I don't know what Afrofuturism is. And so they always, you know, rephrase the question as a statement, right. which I always find kind of funny. I never say anything, but I, I recognize that's what they're doing because mm-hmm. they don't want to like, they want to, they don't want people to be uneasy that like they're not going to get something. Right. Whereas I'm like, well, yeah, I know that um, they're going to get an answer. Mm-hmm. So I want to create the question and right. say like the program is the answer, and they're like, no, the programming is like I'm gonna explain everything, like, mm. and that's complicated because like no program can explain everything, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, touching back on what you were just saying right now, why did you decide? And because I, I have this as a question, but I'm just gonna ask it now since you were just talking about it. Why did you or others, you know, you as a curator, but wh- why did you all decide on? Or settle on sound, vision, spirit, and space as thematic subjects for the cycle. Yeah, um, I I settled on it. Like I just told them. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like like no one, like you know, uh, they're much better now. But when I, when we first started, it was like, what are you talking about? I might mm-hmm. as well have been talking a foreign language. <laughs> and and so like I always. <laughs> Realistically, I always like write out like a little explainer sheet, mm-hmm. like a one pager. Yeah. Like you know, you're you know, you're, you when you're undergrad, like your uh-huh. professor will say, like, you're gonna have to summarize information in your yeah. real job, and that's exactly <laughs> what happens like all the time. Like, all right, like one page where I lay out the justification for why this way. And so, uh, part of the reason I do it that way is because I think there are like like five kind of thematic things that are sort of integrated across Afrofuturism. So like one's aesthetics, so like vision. Mm-hmm. One's gender, like one's cosmology, like spiritualism. One's science, and then one's community, right? And so what I'm trying to do with these questions is sort of like touch on all of them. Right. <laughs> touch on all those things. And so that's why it's the way that it is. Like when I say, what is Afrofuturism? I really sort of like, okay, people, if you say Afrofuturism, they're going to think literary things and so like okay let's talk about what that is but all at the same time in that first year we put a lot of emphasis on thinking about well there's an idea of like black speculative practice which is a way of describing the way that black people are using imagination to like seek out freedom mm-hmm. so that doesn't necessarily have to just be black science fiction right. which is a very narrow thing but in fact on the one hand, it's very narrow because if you say to a normal person, what, what is black science fiction? They'll say, like, you mean like Octavia Butler? Like, yes, that is perfectly reasonable response. Well, Octavia Butler started publishing work in, like, the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And before her, Samuel Delaney, who's like a black queer writer, is the first black science fiction writer that's sort of recognized in the sort of, like, modern science fiction era. But there are, like, 10 novels that are written starting in the 19th century and maybe even, you know, Probably more. Depends on how you want to define it. But yeah, there are speculative things written by black people. You know, and and a lot of those things have increasingly been added to the canon of science fiction, been added to the canon of Afrofuturism. And uh but most people don't know what they are. Like most people have never read Polly Hopkins of One Blood, which is like an eighteen 1902, 1905 was serialized in a magazine where they haven't read Martin R. Delaney's Blake, which is a novel that was serialized in black newspapers in the 18, late 1859, 1860. But those those books have been, those things that were serialized have been collected and they are in libraries. Like you can go to your local library and and they're not like spaceships. Like, you know, Martin R. Delaney's Blake is a 
story of a hemispheric slave revolt. And um, Pauline Hopkins of One Blood is, is, is sort of like a this tale of a like mixed race guy who finds out he is the the king, the long lost king of a secret, highly advanced African Ethiopian mm-hmm. kingdom that's hidden from the rest of the world. Um, so in some ways, it sort of seems like Wakanda. Yeah, <laughs> but but you know, most people have never heard of those things, and right. so as you you know, if, you, if you're trying to introduce people to an epistemology, like breaking it up across these sort of thematic things and just sort of honing in, like, this is what it looks like, right. this is what it feels like, that's the reason why. Yeah, no, I think that's a smart choice because, you know, at least from my understanding, you know, I'm very new to this and it definitely helped me understand, you know, when you compartmentalize it like that. Yeah. So my next question actually touches on something you also said, not in this answer, but in your previous answer about when you were presenting to this committee of hey, let's connect the Zorro Festival with Afrofuturism. So I, I want you to break down for our audience the, you know, the naming of the event now that it's those two things are connected. You know, you said yesterday in the conference that this is a way to celebrate the legacy of Zora Neale Hurston and right. to, you know, quote, think outside the box, end quote, like how she did with her life and her work. Right. So, yeah, just explain to us um, about that connection. Sure. The Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities, which is the official title, is named in honor of and inspired by Zora Neale Hurston. It's put on by the Association to Preserve Eatonville Community, which is the organization that puts it on, sometimes referred to as PEC. Mm-hmm. And they created the event uh, as part of like a celebration of the cultural heritage of Eatonville as the home of Zora Neale Hurston. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for someone who like myself, who studies Afrofuturism, Zora Neale Hurston is thought of as an Afrofuturist, right? Because Dor- Zora Neale Hurston in, is involved in the recovery of knowledge of Black diasporic practice and, you know, recognizing and decon- decolonizing, right? Decolonizing the way Blackness is defined in the Western context. And what I mean by that is as a part of the sort of colonial project, right, the settlement of the West, mm-hmm. there is inherent construct construction of blackness is bad and white is good, right? Like that's part of the consequences of why you have slavery. Mm-hmm. You know, they tried slavery with Irish people and the Pope was like, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they tried slavery with Native people, but they were either one, die or two, run away mm-hmm. and like they know where they're going, exactly. right? You know, so like in some ways, like Africans are perfect. Like they, you know, like it's a whole continent of them. It's divided. It's sort of geopolitical things. They're, you know, internal things where like, you know, if you're on the wrong side of a conflict, you can be sold into slavery. And mm-hmm. there's enormous sort of like literature that sort of talks about this. And like, you know, as I point out to students, the slavery that those Africans are dealing with is not chattel slavery, though. It's a different model of slavery. It's like a kind of household slavery. Mm-hmm. Chattel slavery is really a consequence of like the Western hemispheric plantation extraction mm-hmm. imperialist economy, which really maximizes using basically human labor, black human labor, to the degree that it can be, um, you know, exhausted to death, right? right. So to, to get well. And so like that, you know, it's, so it's important to dehumanize those people. Like, you know, if you were working someone to death and you thought of them as people, you might have feelings. Right. So you kind of go like, well, they're not human. They're like livestock and mm-hmm. I can work my livestock how I, I see fit. And so like there's an inherent negativity to blackness. And that is part of a colonial system. And it's primarily 
something that heavily, heavily defines the Western experience, but it's a global phenomenon, mm-hmm. like the you know the the, the stratification around racial uh, identity. Um, you can see it everywhere, right? You can see it in Latin America, you can see it in the United States, you can see it in Asia, and so on and so forth. But for Zordner Hurston, a lot of her work is, work, you know, a lot, almost all of her work is, is, is directly in opposition to that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when she's doing her oral history work, she's documenting black people and black culture practice. When she's doing her anthropology work, you know, she's analyzing black language, she's analyzing black cultural practice, so celebrating it as a writer. Um, she's documenting sometimes in a very in, in a mix of sort of like uh, uh, almost like a journalistic way like she's telling stories of black people telling stories of black spaces telling stories of black experience right and these are all things that like you know as, as from an Afrofuturist standpoint like really sort of resonate right she, she's often putting a lot of emphasis on black women's agency and black women's sort of perspectives and so she's intersectional in a way so there's a lot of you know, her work is Afrofuturism, and, so, and, and we can kind of make an argument uh, uh, about that. Um, you know, at some level, Zona Hurston is, is underappreciated mm-hmm. as, a, as, a, as a theorist, mm-hmm. right? Like, a, as a theorizing person. Right. Because, like, you know, she's sort of, like, embedded in the canon as a literary figure right. as opposed to embedded in the canon as a theorizing exactly. figure, yep. right? Yeah. And if you just sort of step back and go like, but she's theorizing and she looks a lot more like, say, a W.E.B. Du Bois mm-hmm. than she does like Gene Toomer. Right. But, you know, in a way, it's like, well, the way we, we choose to, to remember her has to do with like Alice Walker and her being rediscovered mm-hmm. and, and so on. But in a very real way, she's like this figure who's, who's like a Du Bois moving from genre to genre, you know, doing critical work, also doing artistic work, right. very concerned about social, you know, conditions of African-Americans advocating a very particular view. And so it, it, it's easy if you think about it to say like, oh, yeah, she's this really sort of like highly innovative theoretical person. And so that's part of the part of the reason one of my arguments was like, yeah, if you think about Afrofuturism and sound, she works in that. Zoe Hirschman works in that. If you think about Afrofuturism and aesthetic, Zoe Hirschman works in that. If you think about Afrofuturism and cosmology or spirituality, Zoe Hirschman works in that. Think about Afrofuturism and community. I was wondering, like, so like, right. it doesn't matter what you do, you can fit her in there. Exactly. Uh, so we should just use her, right? Like, it'll it'll make perfect sense. And, and I understand that at the time, many people just did not. They were not on board. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like some people who were like more traditional Hurston scholars were like, I don't get it. And, um, but, you know, I made my argument that, you know, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. And I think most people now get it, right? Yeah. Like most people now are like, oh, yeah, yeah, I see that. But, okay, great. It was implicitly mentioned in the beginning of the event and explicitly mentioned during the roundtable by the moderator. That you are sort of like the the progenitor of this practice of Afrofuturism, in the, at least in the context of this event, right? Right, yeah. And, you know, he said that you are responsible in some way, shape, or form for all of those panelists' understanding of it. So, can you talk to us a little bit about the origins of this practice in an academic sense? I know you said the term was coined in the 90s. Yeah. Um, you know, and what drew you into it personally and what motivated you to elevate it to this level of where it is now, you know, being the organizer of a yeah, yeah. event? Yeah. So um, the term Afrofuturism is coined by a cultural critic named Mark Derry in 1994, who's actually a, a white guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he coined the term in the context of a essay called Black to the Future, which is in a book of essays by him called Flame War. And 
at the time that that article uh, Black to the Future is actually an interview with um, Samuel Delaney, who's that black science fiction, black queer science fiction writer. Trisha Rose, who's a hip hop scholar, and Greg Tay, who's like a cultural critic, music scholar, uh, writer. And he's asking them about black people and, and science fiction. And in the introduction to the, the article, the bulk of the article is, a, is interviewing these people, but in the introduction to it, Mark Derry makes a series of like historical observations. And he sort of like posits this is that like, well, black people don't engage with science fiction. That's what he's positing. Like he only think of like three people. He names like Samuel Delaney. He names like Charles Saunders and he names like Octavia Butler. And like, these are only people that have really written sort of like genre fiction. And, uh, and he's like, that doesn't make any sense because in, in a way, black people are the descendants of alien adoptees. And like, he uses a series of like historical analogies that really sort of like call attention to the ways that the black experience in the West and an alien abduction story are exactly the same thing. And in, in, in doing all that, you know, he says, you know, he gives a sort of definition of Afro, and he calls it, you know, signification, you know, African-American themes and African-American signification. Blah, blah, blah. Like, and he gives this sort of definition, which I should know by heart by this time because I was TJ all the time. But but he basically said that that would be called Afrofuturism. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then he goes into the interview with these people and he's asking these questions about science fiction. And about mm-hmm. like, and, and if you read this, and again, it's in the library. Uh, you can actually Google this and you'll find it. Uh, the people don't actually agree with him. Okay. I, I think, you know, that's, that's one of the things that's really interesting. I think they, they all offer caveats right. to this prep, this, this preposition that, you know, black people don't do science fiction. Like, you know, Samuel R. Delaney says, well, we don't know all the writers in, in pulp, in the pulp era in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Those are, that was mainly a, a correspondence kind of business. So it could have been black writers and that was Greg Tate. you know, I don't think that's true. I think hip hop is science fiction. Like black people really consume science fiction are very concerned about science fiction. And even Trisha Rose, I think, you know, doesn't necessarily accept the premise, but that's where the term comes from. And it really captures, a, it's a term that captures a practice, right? Like, so when people hear it, when people heard it, they really immediately go like, well, well actually that, that explains this thing, right. that this, 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 this pattern of, of black cultural production. Mm-hmm. And it's Alondra Nelson and who was at the time, and now Alondra Nelson is like an undersecretary in charge of the Office of Scientific Research in the White House. Like, mm-hmm. she's in the Biden administration. But at the time, in the late 90s, she was a graduate student at Columbia. And she was like, she set up something called the Afrofuturist Listserv. And on that listserv were people like Greg Tate, people like DJ Spooky, people like Fatima Tagar, like, you know, these artists and people who who really, you know, they took this term... And and they used it to really sort of flesh out a kind of philosophy around black speculative and practice. And they really talked about it. And she talked about it, Alondra Nelson talks about it as a way to understand black and African diasporic take on modernity, what we what we call modernity. It's a way they understand black subjectivity in the context of the quote unquote modern era, right? You know, mm-hmm. it's a way to understand um that sense of alienation and, and, and alien. And, you know, she organized a special issue of a journal called Social Text. And that was about Afrofuturism, right? And, you know, and her work became really important in people like Kojo Ashun, who's a Ghanaian British writer. He wrote about music. 
uh, in Afrofuturism in a book called More Brilliant Than the Sun. And then, you know, from that, you, you just have this low, steady kind of academic conversation about Afrofuturism, right? And and it sort of persists into, you know, for years in these sort of smaller pockets. Mm-hmm. And uh, probably around 2012, 13 maybe one of the one of the places that Afrofuturism was defined very very early on in Derry's original argument was comics mm-hmm. like he used comic illustrations as examples he said you know Afrofuturism percolates in black drawn and black written comics in the in art he also used hip hop right? right like you know he talked about hip hop artist Ram Azal mm-hmm. um Ram and uh you talk about Jimi Hendrix, you talk about Parliament of Funk, and you talk a lot about music, you talk about comics. And so I studied comics, mm-hmm. and I you know, I studied like Black Panther, mm-hmm. right? So I've written about Black Panther. And so Black Panther was always like, oh, yeah, Black Panther is Afrofuturist. Right. Like Black Panther is a proto, you know, it's like clearly an Afrofuturist thing, uh, even though it's not a black drawn. <laughs> black drawn. I mean, for most of his history, it wasn't a black drawn. A black person doesn't start to write. Uh, Black Panther to the 1990s. That's Christopher Priest. And a black person draws it in the 70s. And that's um, Billy Graham. Hmm. Super, super talented guy. But no one looks at Black Panther and go, not Afrofuturist. Okay, right. it kind of is. Yeah. And so, you know, as a, as a person who thinks about comics, I'm like, yes, this is. The, and, and so, like, my entree into Afrofuturist is comics. Mm-hmm. It's the way that comics, milestone comics were the comics that, Charles, you know, Mark Derry used. To illustrate, you know, Afrofuturism, he used like hardware, was sort of like an Iron Man esque character from Milestone. Uh, and so, like, as a comic scholar, you know, I'm really interested in Afrofuturism, which is why I'm like, oh, yeah. And so I really was, was, was exploring and coming to it from that perspective, like, as a comic artist. And then sort of thinking about it as a, a cultural movement, as a person who thinks about culture. That's how I got involved in it and, and curating shows around it. And I developed my class on Afrofuturism, which is called Afrofantastic. And then I did a show that was connected to the class when I was teaching at Rollins. Like I had a class that was called Afrofantastic. And then I had an art show and the students in the class working on the show. Because like, you know, I picked up pieces and they worked on wall text and things like that. And it was like a mixed media show. We had books in it. You know, first edition of books like the Blake book or mm-hmm. books like Sutton Griggs. And then we had comic art, and, you know, and we have like more abstract art. Like, so we're sort of trying to trace how I kind of black speculative practice my manifest across these sort of disciplinary spaces. And that's really kind of how I, I got into it. It was comics. And then, oh, okay. If, if what does it mean to sort of understand uh, Afrofuturism as an epistemological approach and how, they, how those different innovations look? in different cultural fields, right? Oh, okay, Afrofuturism in the comics is this and that and the other. Afrofuturism in uh, film is this, that, you know. And so, like, especially when you teach that class, when you're trying to explain it, that kind of pushes you to kind of explore, okay, well, if I was going to tell people about the literary history of it, you know, who, how, how do I get them into it? If I'm talking about an aesthetic history of Afrofuturism, how do I get it? How do I get them exposed to it? So, like, you know, teaching that class kind of, by default, expands your your repertoire of talking about right. what is really a kind of dynamic feel. Right. For sure. Uh, I have one on the comics later because I find that absolutely fascinating. Talk to us a little bit about this year's theme of spirituality of Afrofuturism. Right. So, 
when when people talk about spirit Afrofuturism, it obviously for a lot of people has to do with the recovery of indigenous spiritual practices. And that ties in with the pattern of recovery that's very very much a part of how a kind of especially a kind of African American based take on Afrofuturism is formulated and thought about. But it also I think takes into account a cosmology, right? Like a way that we understand how the universe works, how things like time and space are both defined and uh, acted upon in a society and what are those sort of precepts that, that define it. And so, you know, when we think about uh, spirituality in Afrofuturist context, we, we're, we're thinking both of a kind of, spiritual practice like you know the things that we might think of as a religion but we're also thinking about the like rules about how the universe works like the cosmological framework that allow people to understand reality right and you know that's a really kind of like expansive challenge and so like when when i was thinking about this year i was like well you know actually i think it's important so i think about that the idea especially in the context of of Central Florida and the Black experience, like what does a kind of um, more redemptive, transformative, moral space look like? And and what what are those legacies? On the one hand, obviously, Eatonville itself is a kind of moral project for Black people. Like they're trying, they're using it to sort of affirm themselves, Mm -hmm. you know, create a space where they're safe, where where their children will be safe, where they can be educated. But at the same time, I think like, you know, Thinking about the origins of of Eatonville, that's why I thought it was really important to have Dr. Scott French talk about his work looking at the founding era of Eatonville and and the ways that a kind of moral capitalism intersected with African-American aspirations to help create the town, right? Mm -hmm. And and it really sort of calls attention to the way that a kind of allyship between blacks and whites in the late 19th century was like a piv- can often be pivotal in terms of creating uh, moments of success and transformation in the American experience, which I think is a, an important story to be reminded of um, as as black and white people today kind of struggle against um, whether kind of retrenchment in in terms of like social and and political policies that at some level demean people of color, marginalize their concerns. Uh, at the same time, when you, you think about something like time and cosmology, having someone like Rashida Phillips who who really writes about time and thinks about time and, and sort of thinks about time not as like a kind of define, you know, it's kind of thing that is, but as like, you know, how do we get to the place where the time that we have is the way that it is, which seems crazy, but mm-hmm. is it really important? Because almost every every everything is a, a a set of shared agreements when it comes to reality. Like what? what why is why is green go and red stop? Well, because we agreed on it. Like if mm-hmm. for some reason half the people decided, well, green is stop and red is go, we would have a problem, yeah. <laughs> right? Right. Like like agreements and like you know pr- you know practice really kind of keep things together. Right. If for some reason, people get off that train, chaos ensues, yeah. right? Like, which all you got to do is look at the world right now. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, I don't believe that happened. Really? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, that's a problem yeah. for me, right? Yeah. Like, you're like, you're like well, I don't care about your problem. Yeah. Right? Like, now you're in, a, you're in a very different place. Right. You're like, okay, well, 
we got issues then yeah. don't we right yeah. like you know it's not a shooting war yet but it can get there yeah right yep. so it's like um unless you really think about it you're never really called on to to consider the mechanism mm-hmm. associated with it right and right. so it's those are the kind of conversations that you do want people to take into account when they're you know being presented with yeah, the, the kind of big ideas associated with Afrofuturism. And so I think, like, you know, our, our discussions uh, at the conference, you know, gave people a lot to think about, right? Like a lot to... For sure. To, to wrestle with. And hopefully, you know, always with, with something like this, you, you're doing it for an audience that you don't know where they are when they mm-hmm. when they walk in the door. And so you, you're, you're kind of hoping that you move them but you don't know how far, mm-hmm. right? You just right. kind of go like, all right, well, I did my best, and then you walk away. Right, for sure. Well, that that's actually my next question, which is a two-parter. First part is, what is the goal of Afrofuturism as an academic practice and understanding? And then part two of that question is, what is the main takeaway or takeaways you'd want the public, whether it's students like me or just the general public, um, to get out of an event like this? Yeah, I think the goal of Afrofuturism obviously is a healthier, safer, more equitable world, like as a philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, like a lot of thought movements right. of the last 200 years, mm-hmm. it is about righting wrongs, right? And and promoting a more equitable society. I mean, you can make the argument that's what Christian socialism was. Like, you know, that That's what, you know, kind of progressivism was. That's what, you know, for Marxists, that's what they, they, they you know, it, it is, it's a thought process that is advocating for uh, a liberatory, restorative, equitable world. And it's, you know, trying to achieve that through a kind of transformation in thought. And, and so, you know, when you you ask like, what do you want people that go to the conference, go to the festival? Think well, I, I think ultimately one of the things that's central to that first part is building people's capacity to understand what that would look like. Right, like Americans in particular, they accept certain kind of utopian ideas, but they only accept them because they don't think about the detail. <laughs> details. Like uh, my my standard example of this is Star Trek. Right, because I'm a very nerdy person. I'm I've watched all Star Trek, mm-hmm. right, all of it, uh-huh. even some I didn't like. I watched, right, like <laughs> for sure. I watched all Star Trek, and and I point out the students that you know Star Trek is a utopian society that does not have money and does not have prisons. It really doesn't have a military because technically the, the Federation is exploratory. Like, yeah, they can defend mm-hmm. themselves, but they don't go out looking for trouble. they right. like, like, that ain't our job. Right. Our job is to explore. And everyone's like, oh, that's great. I love that. I'm like, all that hippie stuff, you love that, really? <laughs> like, if it, if you put it in a different context, like, ah, oh, I'm not sure how I feel about, like, throwing down the guns and not having no prisons. Like, you accept it in Star Trek. They don't got no prison. Yeah. They have rehabilitation centers. Uh-huh. That's what they have. They literally say in the show, in the first show ever to show, like, I know you did wrong, but we're going to see you in the rehabilitation center, and you're going to be better, and then you're going to be a, a functional member of society. And everyone's standing around going, oh, yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. No one's going, like, no, no, throw them in a yeah. hole and never let them out. Like, like yes, rehabilitation. That's that's the that's the humane thing to do. Like, okay, and they don't have money. Greedy as Americans are, they all accept that, but they don't have money. They made up money in the next generation and they assigned it to the Ferengi, right? Cause Latinum. Mm-hmm. And you know, and they make fun of it. They're like, oh yeah, they're all about like the Yankee trader. Mm. And they, <laughs> they don't like turn up their nose, like, mm. 
Like, I mean, yo, every American accepts that. It's like, well, we love Star Trek. Like, oh, yeah, okay. But they don't believe in like, all these fundamental things that you think. And you know, like, if a black person said, let's get rid of prison, you're like, oh, no. Like, really? <laughs> really? Okay. All right, like, let's lay lay back. Not, not not even like get rid of the prison. Like just defund the like defund the police. Not saying they can't have any fun, just not as much. Put some of the funds into like education or something. I'm like, oh no, we can't do that. I'm like, oh really? I think context matters here, right? <laughs> so there's an element here where I I feel one of the things about Afrofuturism is that it calls attention to ideas that are well accepted and and. American society, but because they are associated with black people advocating for them, they're they're suspect. But they're not the ideas themselves aren't suspect. What is suspect is how you understand the critique underpinning, right? Like so so that becomes like it's sort of huge educational thing. You don't have to be black to be an Afrofuturist. You don't, because like it's a philosophy that's advocating for a more free and equitable society. And the society that it advocates for, if it was in place, no one would be oppressed, right? Because of the way that it's set up. Because the people who are who are theorizing it have been oppressed. So they're like super sensitive to oppression. So the system they're advocating for, people don't get oppressed. Black people don't get oppressed. But really everybody doesn't get oppressed, right? They're like, right. no, no, no. We don't want an oppressive system. So that means like all the white people will be safe too. Like everybody would be safe. It's just like, how do you get there? And it's like choices, right? Like it, 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 there are different choices that you have to make, right? Like in part of what Afrofuturism is asking you to do is to think about the choices that underpin how society operates and make choices that are about liberatory caring system as opposed to exploitive alienating systems, right? Like alienation. What does it mean to be alienated? Well, I think a lot of Americans feel that every day. They feel alienated. Well, why do you feel alienated? Well, somebody somewhere in power will go, well, it's these people over here that are causing you to be alienated. But I think what Afrofuturists will argue is like, no, it's a system that is built on a set of like extractive relationships that are born of like imperialism and colonialism. That is the reason you feel alienated, right? So think about how that system operates. Think about how you would change it and, and you would have um, consequences that would be very, very positive for you as an individual and for society as a whole. And those are, those aren't, those aren't bad ideas, right? Those are, those are ideas that resonate with, every other previous generation's effort to sort of, like, make a more humanized society, right? You get it with, like, progressive era reforms where, oh, yeah, we, we don't work kids no more. Mm-hmm. We used to, but we don't now. We, we, uh, you know, like, we, don't, we don't make kids work in, in factories no more. Like, oh, well, lazy bastards. Mm-hmm. Well, no. <laughs> kids need to go to school. Right. Oh, 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 okay. Well, I, I guess so. Yeah. I guess so. You know, we don't we don't let people put put products out that are poisonous. Like you know, make food that like is if you bite into it, you die. Well, you know, you, you take your chances in life, right? Like, if you're not aware enough of what you're buying to make good choices, ain't it your fault that you die? Nobody thinks that. Nobody thinks that because like that's not reasonable. Like you were selling it, and we're all agree. Like if you sell something, you say it's okay to eat. It ought to be okay to eat. 
right? Like you don't, you can't be like, well, you know, I get it all right some of the time. That won't work. What about the people who died the other times, right? So it's like, uh, those are like really simple ideas and we accept them. But they were not simple ideas at the time. They were put forward by people. People were like, no, I don't want to do that. Like, I, I want to be able to make my stuff and I don't want to have to care about, like, whether or not people die from it. Like, well, that doesn't seem reasonable. <laughs> like, like, we're going to have to have some food and drug rules here. So get, a, get with the program. It'll be good for everybody. And I was like, we accept it now. Right. You said a lot of interesting things during the event. Um, I know because I was literally writing down as many things <laughs> as I can in preparation for this podcast. But and you also mentioned it in your previous answer. But I would like for you to explain to the listeners about the founding generation of the people of Edenville, um, you know, circa 1887. And you said, you know, that, that they were futurists and in, in the sense of that, you know, obviously Afrofuturism, the term. You know, it didn't exist at that time, but that's essentially what they were doing, those people. Can you expand on that point for the listeners? Because I think it's a great example of this practice in, you know, in a real world setting. Right. So for the founders of Eatonville, they they existed in a society rapidly uh, becoming hostile to African-American aspirations towards citizenship and, and autonomy coming after the end of Reconstruction. And so the residents who founded the town were looking for a tool or, you know, how to try to try to create a, a space that would ensure their freedom, right? Would, that would sustain themselves and their family and their and the future generations and the creation of an all black town that where they can own property, have businesses, educate their children, create uh, a prosperity that can be handed down is really they're doing that in opposition to a kind of relentless systemic erasure, right? Like that's pushing them out of the public sphere. No, we don't want you to vote. Uh, is seeking to prevent them from having economic autonomy. No, we won't sell you land. Is is trying to, to undermine their ability to educate themselves. Like, no, we don't want to fund black education. Or we're going to fund it very low. And they all, you know, they have to answer every one of these challenges through action. Right. They have to figure out a way to acquire land. They have to figure out a way to educate. They got to figure out a way to, to have economics, you know, sustainable economic uh, profile. And Eatville is that for them. Right. Like, you know, they, they, they partner with with white allies, get the land, you know, plat it out, put rules and regulations on a plate designed to keep it in black hands and, and really sort of commit to a philosophy of community building and, and, and stability that they champion around right. the country and around the world. Right. Right. Like, you know, this is this is an answer to these criticisms. This is an answer to these sort of like um undermining practices. And so that therefore you can you can easily see it as this sort of like intersection between speculation and liberation I always talk about. These people are speculating what is necessary for us to be safe, what is necessary for us to be successful, what's necessary for our families in the future to be safe and successful. And they're like, yes, let's make a town. Let's incorporate that town. Let's keep that town a black town. And and that's, you know, an incredibly sort of like speculative exercise, right? Like they have to believe in the vision and, and sort of act on it. And that idea, I think, still motivates people in Edenville even to this day. Like, you know, it's it's a black town. And we we can hear that in the parents context and just sort of simplify the motivations behind that. But, you know, that that idea of it is a black town is really tied to a kind of counter counter public 
process of Black people asserting an ability to govern themselves, an ability to be economically and socially successful, an ability to sort of like provide for and promote the next generation into successful um, sort of being. And, and, and that's part of the reason why you know, when people talk about Edenville, when I talk about Edenville, I'm like, yeah, that's a, that's those, all those towns that were created by black people, and there were hundreds of them, you know, characterized as race colonies, they're all engines of speculation created by black people with the eye towards promoting transformative practice that is going to help black, help black people right now, but also help black people in the future. Right. What are some of the classes you teach at Michigan State University that are directly tied to Afrofuturism and its themes? I know you mentioned your Afro fantastic class. Right. And is it true? That I I don't know if you said it or the moderator said it uh, yesterday that it's in those big lecture halls. And yeah. It gets filled. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I teach a, I teach what we call a uh, integrated art humanities class, which is a gen ed, mm-hmm. you know, gen ed class. Uh, we call it IAH. And I teach one on Afrofuturism called Afrofantastic Race, Power, and Gender in the Black Imaginary. I think it's the title. Um, yeah. And it's it's one of those classes. I have four TAs and it's, and it's capped at 400. Wow. So it's like, eh, usually I get to around 380, 390, something. Yeah. Because, <laughs> like, you have to do stuff in that class. Right. Um, so, yeah, like that's that's that class is like on the books after a future. I teach it every year. And I, I teach other classes. I teach a class on um, black comics. I teach a class that's like, you know, studies in genre, black comics. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've taught that class. I've also ta- taught a class uh, on techno culture, mm. right? And so like what I'm teaching that class, I'm trying to integrate ideas of Afrofuturism into it. Uh, so those are the kind of classes I teach. And of course, you know, as a curator, I curated an exhibition on Afrofuturism of American comics called, called Beyond the Black Panther, Afrofuturism mm-hmm. American Comics, which, you know, was a, a physical show and a virtual show. And now it's a traveling show. So if you're listening, it's like, oh, well, well you can contact the MSU Museum and it's a traveling show. You will send you the thing. There you go. Um, but yeah, that's that's the kind of stuff. That's awesome. Yeah, it's it's hard for me to imagine a humanities class getting filled at 380 you know UCF, <laughs> I don't, never experienced that man i wish i had that that's dope um give us a brief preview of what to expect for next year's zora festival um where the theme is space yeah you know, this is the last year and obviously space is a really complicated context in light of Eatonville, so like current debates about development, right. identification. Mm-hmm. So space is both uh, in Afrofuturism a place that is real place, like outer space, and there's a lot of space symbolism. But it's also an internal place. And so, you know, as I mentioned at the event, you know, space is a place is a very famous album by Sun Ra. And it's interesting to think that you know, one of the one of the ways that space is offered up in Afrofuturism is that it is a place freed from the constraints and presuppositions associated with earthly space, right? There, out in the outer space, you're allowed to be free, right? You're not defined by the sort of like oppressive assumption associated with the celestial space. And I think one of the things that Afrofuturism often does is that it, it sees that freedom of that kind of cosmic celestial space, you know, you know, outer space, mm-hmm. and it seeks it 
in in people. Like it tries to inspire the kind of freedom represented by that within and within within ourselves, right? Like, you know, I am freed from the sort of constraints in my mind. I I am open my inner eye or, or, or open my mind to possibilities. And so one of the things that I, I'm pretty positive we're going to do is we're going to engage with um, kind of future studies practice and really think about how people can imagine new spaces. And that'll be like a huge part of, of what'll happen at the festival. And there's different ways to do that. And I know I, I have a couple of things in mind. Nice. Um, but I'm also, you know, mindful of the fact that it is actual physical spaces. So what does a 21st century black town look like? Right. Right. Like, uh, what is a 21st century Eatonville? Like, you know, what is Eatonville? What's, and, and, and here again, the idea of like, what does it mean to sort of bring the technological transformations of now to bear and envisioning an Eatonville of the future. An uh, Eatonville that's projecting itself into the in, into the next 150 years. You know, is that a wired Eatonville? Is that an Eatonville that's 100 percent sustainable? In some ways, you know, the black experience is 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 tied up in concepts that are very in vogue. When you think about Eatonville, you think about something like sustainability. Well, one of the sort of core principles of Eatonville was a kind of sustainable architectural, like an agrarian futurism, right? Mm -hmm. We can grow enough food to feed ourselves, but we also grow enough food that we can sell it to local restaurants and hotels at the time. Uh, we, we are not beholding to other communities to feed ourselves. You know, we can educate ourselves. And so there's a real, there's a real way where like ideas that we might associate with like things like solar power or being off grid or wind power sustainability right like the ability to um, have a community that that can exist move forward like so to me i'm like oh yeah you know, is there a way where we can sort of bring those kind of ideas to intersect with um the evil community in the 21st century i don't know um what that would look like but i, I feel like the history suggest that those are the kind of ideas that if if they were setting up the town today, those are the kind of ideas they would be engaging with. They would be engaging with things like, yeah, what does it mean to have blockchain? And what kind of economic um, stability or economic freedom uh, can be achieved by cryptocurrency? That That is a thing that Afrofuturists talk about, right? And so those are the kinds of things where I'm like, yeah, is there a way for us to bring those ideas into, into conversation with um, these sort of like historic black spaces. I think that's an important sort of way to end it. Um, the cycle after this has already been picked. It's called placemaking. The theme okay. is placemaking. I'm not in charge of that, oh, but okay. and, and and I'm not in charge of that. But I was going to ask if you were. And I was going to say yeah. you got to be because you're killing it now. Right? But, yeah. Uh, I don't. Uh, yeah. I don't think they want a uh, uh, one person curating right. anymore. Like this, like it's really complicated. Um. <laughs> But placemaking is the theme. So in some ways, like, you know, of course, that makes a lot of sense because place is a challenge, not just simply for a historic black community, but because of environmental questions, especially in Florida, place is very, very complicated, right? Mm -hmm. Like there are environmental displacement effects taking place in, in, in places like Miami, right? Where places like um, historically black and Hispanic spaces are being priced out because you can't be on the, you know, the, the beach is going to be on the water mm -hmm. and development is pushing out. It's pushing this place where it wasn't 
wasn't, you know, it wasn't desirable. So black people and Hispanic people are there now. But now it's like, yeah, well, we need that land. <laughs> so they've been buying that stuff up and it's pushing people out, right? It's pushing people. Out. And Miami is a place that is experiencing climate change. You know, seawater comes out of the, the sewer, right? Like it's it's real for them. It's not a hypothetical. Mm-hmm. Like they spend a hundred million dollars at least a year raising streets up, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, that's a South Florida thing that's totally accessible that we understand like that is a consequence of shifts in, in climate. And so like those are those are fundamental place based questions. You add on to that, you know, accessible, affordable housing, questions about density, you know, one arguably one way to address affordability is higher density, but Americans don't like density. And but at the same time, Florida is a place that that attracts uh, a family a day. You know, <laughs> like every 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 day, more people move to Florida, and mm-hmm. so things like water, things like traffic, um, things like air quality, those are real questions, and and they they involve the way that we approach place place making the choices that are associated with that and you always run into the danger in the context of those questions about those people with the least amount of money the least amount of power bearing the brunt of like poor decisions in terms of those things so it's like you know whatever they do in terms of place making is probably going to matter because they're going to have in back in their minds like what is it going to mean for People of color, and therefore, what is it going to mean for like the the people at the lowest end of the ladder, the people who are dealing with the consequences of, of choices, right? So it'll be interesting, no matter what. But yeah, stay tuned. Yeah, for sure. And what do you hope to see in the the future of Afrofuturism as a study, but also as a practice? Yeah, you know, I I think about this a lot. Um, how Afrofuturism is going to evolve? It has has some really important questions and on on the one hand I, I i do think as a movement culture there's a tremendous desire on the part of people involved in afrofuturism for it to be a template for action right and afrofuturism is not strictly speaking defined exclusively by the, at the academy it's not just simply talking heads right it is people doing stuff mm-hmm. and so what that stuff is, be it activism, you know, art activism on the ground, be it sort of like techno liberation narratives, like getting internet access to people using blockchain for economic development, you know, thinking about the ways that science systematically does not take into account the experience of, of people of color and, and asking for more equitable set of, of practices and experience. Those things are very real, right? And as you get more people who understand Afrofuturism, as a philosophy in in institutions, you have this ripple effect in terms of like making different choices in, in the way that things are implemented or even in the ways that things are designed that take into account trying to create a more liberatory outcome. And that's a that's a big deal, right? At the same time, I think you know, Afrofuturism is at this point, you know, 1994, 2024 is a uh, 30 years, yeah. 30 years of like so it's like okay, what does that you know, um, a thought movement that's that old but now has more and more people sort of participating. Mm-hmm. You know, is it going to like split off into like these sort of channels? Right. And, and and do these sort of different things like you know the sort of emergence of like ideas like African futurism versus Afrofuturism. Those are probably 
natural consequences of like a lot more people being involved in the conversation. Afrofuturism does not mean the same thing to Africans, people in Africa, mm-hmm. that it does to someone in America, right? You know, if you're a kid growing up in uh, Chicago Southside and you're a kid growing up in Lagos, you're not dreaming about the same future, but you might have similar concerns about structures and inequities in terms of power and and exploitation and things like that but your but your solutions to those similar concerns might be very different right and so there's a way where the growth of the movement of futures as a global intellectual exercise is by default going to be much more dynamic as Renato Anderson's Afrofuturist theorist talks about, you know, Afrofuturism is a set of tools that's being used by people in different places for liberation, but it's liberating the people in the place, right? It's like, it's that thing that you need when you need it, right? It's sort of like how George Clinton defines funk. It's like, it's funk is what you need when you need it. Mm-hmm. And Afrofuturism is like a tool for liberation. It's a toolkit for liberation, but if you know, the thing in front of you you need to be liberated from is this. That's the thing in front of you you need to be liberated from. Over here, on the other side of the world, they're looking at a thing and they're like, okay, I want to use that fusion liberating stuff. But it might not be the same thing. Right. And so there's there's this real sort of sophistication that likely to emerge in as Afrofuturism becomes a more standard set of tools that more and more people have access to. And that's interesting to think about. Right, that's interesting to sort of wrestle with, uh, because the the goal always is liberation. So therefore, I don't know that we we're ever against that that liberatory outcome. So how people get there is really the question. Right. All right. So the next couple of questions, as we're wrapping up this podcast, are going to be focused more on your illustrious career. You know, I have you sitting right in front of me, so I can't waste this opportunity to to pick your brain about things you've done in your career that are very similar to what we're doing right now, which is podcasting. Uh, So, Dr. Chambliss, you have produced and hosted two podcast shows, Every Tongue Got to Confess podcast and the Reframing History podcast, which ran from 2016 to 2020 and 2018 to 2020, respectively. You produced a total of 81 episodes with those two podcast shows, 55 with Every Tongue Gotta Confess, and 26 with Reframing History. What inspired you to create, produce, and host these two podcast shows, and what was the purpose of each of those? Well, um, what inspired me, like, I really, I was really inspired by Robert Casanello, who was at UCF, mm-hmm. right? So, he's a big podcaster. Right. I think he sort of evolved past podcasts at this point. But, you know, he was doing a lot with podcasts. Yep, and podcasting, you know, really fits within the historian's wheelhouse because podcasting is a kind of documentary mm-hmm. interview process it really democratizes i think information or I, I i think history has a commitment to sort of like public information right mm-hmm. like it is one of the as a discipline as a humanities discipline history has long been concerned with you know sharing the information with people right and historians for many many decades really wrote for a public that was not just simply other intellectuals. It was like the public. Mm-hmm. Like, it's like, you know, why am I writing a history book? Well, I, I'm writing it because I 
I think it's rich and important, but I think that normal people are going to read it, right? Like, mm-hmm. well into the 20th century, like, you know, you know, history books written by sort of sitting around normal academic historians were on the bestseller list. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a little bit more dichotomy now in, in terms of um, history publications sort of making their way. I mean, certain certain genres remain very popular. Biography, for mm-hmm. instance. Right. You know, that's still very popular history genre that, mm-hmm. that sort of dominates bestseller lists, but not necessarily always written by sort of working academics all the time. Uh, so at some level, you know, the idea of getting the information about a historical subject out to the people, that's a very old idea. And podcast is just a new tool. Right. So when we were developing... When I was working with the Zor Festival, we were going to do a, a conference. You know, this was even before the Afrofuturism cycle. We were going to do a conference about communities of color, right? That was going to be the theme. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons I thought that that was a great idea is because, you know, if you're at the Zor Festival, there are a number of people who come year to year and come from other parts of the country and other parts of the world. They're really drawn to a kind of intellectual idea represented by Eatonville, represented by Zora Hurston. And they can really articulate it. Like, yeah, I, I really believe in blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And you and you wouldn't know that unless you talk to the people, right? Like you, and so I'm like, well, we gotta, we still have to do a podcast where where people are sort of, we're hearing people's voices, sort of like reflecting on and engaging with. And that was really, you know, the first year I was working directly with Robert on it, and I'm like, we could do this, like we can get together. We'll we'll do this podcast. It'll sort of like you know call attention to the academic component, but also really be a way to explore the sort of ideological landscape created by this sort of commitment to community and humanities embodied by the festival. And that really became the goal. So we were working together, recording people related to to, to the festival, recording people who came to the festival, recording professors reflecting on it. And then we just sort of kept that up. Every time I got to confess, the name is actually a reference to a Zona Hurston collection. Hmm. And we just kept it going, right? Year to year, like, you know, Robert stopped after the first year. But Holly Baker, who's uh, yeah. a graduate student here in, in the MA program in public history and has since gone on to work for the Florida Historical Society. Yep. And, and, you know, you hear every week on Florida Frontiers. She was the previous podcast producer yeah, of her very own show. She, yes, why she, yeah, 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 yeah. Yep, yep. She helped me with uh, Every Time It's Gotten to Confess. And, and so we just kept it going. Mm-hmm. And as the themes of the festival changed, of course, the themes of the, the podcast changed, right? So, like, we, you know, we were sort of, again, documenting that that intellectual landscape. And and then I th- I think it worked out well. I think yep. for some people, listening to the podcast really became like, oh, I didn't really think, I never thought about the Zora Festival that way. Mm-hmm. Which was always like, yep, yep, t- totally makes sense. Yep, yep, totally makes sense because you've not been asked to think about it that way. But definitely you should think about it that way. You should think about the ways that the festival is really offering really important transformative moments, right? So yeah, it worked I think it worked it's always worked out really well. And then with framing history, you know, as a podcaster, you know, I think every podcaster sort of learns on a job. Yep, for sure. And so, you know, I would be talking to and you know, Robert's doing Robert Casanello is doing really complicated podcast projects. Some of which, you know, I think were like really groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. I really feel like people don't give Robert enough credit. I think Robert 
understood podcasting as a part of a bigger process. Yes. That, right. And and so like when he did like the History of Central Florida podcast, you know, that's probably one of the greatest podcasts ever produced. Mm-hmm. Like, I, honestly, because like, you know, if you, you sort of look at it and go like, well, you know, that's a multi-year, multi-tiered mm-hmm. thing that he is doing, yep. telling the history of Central Florida in this global way using objects yep. all across the region. I'm like... If he were in New York, he probably would have won an Oscar. I mean, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, no, it's, it's just because he's here right. doing it, you don't, you know, but. Unfortunately, yeah. Yeah, you know, it it, it, it still stands up today. Like, you can go to it today and yes, be like, you can. oh, yeah, like that, that, you know, that, that stuff is evergreen. And so, you know, I'm not going to be Robert. Like, I'm. <laughs> I'm always gonna, I'm always gonna lag behind, but I was like, I'm gonna try to continue to do better, right? Like, you know, edit better and 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 use use the tools out there. So I was working with Scott French, who's the director of public history. He's also the chair of the Academics Committee for the Zora Festival, and we do a lot of local history. Like, you know, we we look at Eatonville, he looks at Maitland, I look at Winter Park and Hannibal Square. We, we, you know, we, we we were doing all this stuff, and um, we really started thinking about a project that was sort of like gonna tell the retell the story of. Um, the founding of Winter Park because it was told a very particular way. We really wanted to, to rethink that story through the lens of neighborhoods and and a kind of multi-class approach, like think about different developments, really tell the story in a more holistic way. And I really wanted to use a new podcast tool called Anchor. Mm-hmm. And and Anchor was a, a kind of app-based thing. And so I, as we were working on this project, I'm like, hey, Scott, we're going to document the project. I've always been very upfront, but when I approach questions of, of black spaces in Central Florida, I always did them as digital projects. The outcome was a digital thing. My goal was not to write a paper. My goal was to create the digital thing. And then once I created that digital thing, I would, you know, my next class, imagine another digital thing in the context of exploring the black community. And, you know, so while the digital project is a thing, the labor of creating that thing is hidden because nobody knows how you you make sort of critical choices mm-hmm. about narrative and outcome and you know what evidence and mm-hmm. and so you know I was like hey let's make a podcast because if we make a podcast then we can talk very explicitly like this exactly. is the way that we're we're doing intervention this is the way yep. we, this is the process that we're going through right. right? And so that that was the first season of reframing history because like I just wanted to reframe personally what I was doing mm-hmm. so that like you know it would be clear. Uh, and I was using a tool. I wanted to learn the tool. And then of course I I left and I got a job at, at Michigan State University. And so the project that I was originally inspired, I'm like, well, I'm not here anymore. And Scott's just were busy, so kind of fell by the wayside. But what you know, I always sort of plan on that being like a kind of 10 episode first season or whatever. Mm-hmm. And we got, I think the 10, ep- yeah, we got the 10 episodes. Yeah. And I was at Michigan state and I was looking back at the, the podcast and I was like, you know, one of the things that really sort of defines the work that was being documented that is the sort of the transformative nature of digital humanities. Right. But that's a really complicated thing. And I was like, you know, that's a thesis for a second season. Mm-hmm. Like what is this? What what is digital humanities? Because that's actually a really complicated question. You ask right. you ask ten people that question, you get probably eight answers, right? Like a lot of people are gonna overlap, but there are gonna be some real, real. So that really became the thesis of of the second season. And in the second season, I really sort of like wanted the podcast to be a DH project. 
which again, while it's not spoken of often, it's not always 100% clear that a podcast is a digital humanities project. And that's, a, again, an internal thing. I mean, you, you could go and talk to Robert Casanello. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, he's thought a lot about and worked very hard around review and trying to get an infrastructure around the review of and, and documentation around podcasts. I mean, like, he worked very hard to get his own podcast mm-hmm. reviewed. Because the review is really at the core of, of assessment in academia. Right. But I, like I said, I, I believe that if you do a digital project and like you have a vision, you implement the vision, you complete the thing, that you did a thing, right? Like I don't need mm-hmm. to like go write a paper so you can feel good about the thing I did. Like mm-hmm. I did a lot of stuff over here. Right. Is that not a thing? And like for some people, the answer is no. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I was really sort of like, yeah, how can I build that second season? As a DH project, unequivocally, like it was not going to be any question. I was really, you know, I really sort of analyzed, you know, I read some stuff from some DA scholars, people like Miriam Posner, and and looked at certain things. I'm like, okay, so I'm going to build the podcast with a certain practice in mind. Like, you know, I'm going to have a thesis. My thesis is the what is the definition of traditional humanities. Even my choices, you know, I really lean very heavily on my own personal. Rolodex, one of the things I was trying to do is really explore different modalities around digital humanities being done both at a kind of institutional level, if you look at something like riches versus like, you know, the individual, right? Like, you know, which a lot of digital humanities is like digital scholarship lab at the University of Richmond. And I talked to Rob Nelson, like that's a huge thing, like right. very famous, you know, riches by comparison is way smaller, but also a huge thing, yes. right? And so, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the activity of like regional DH sort of entities versus like a lone individual, like, you know, those are very different things and, and, and yet they exist in the same spaces and so on and so forth. So yeah, I made that that second season with like a kind of thesis in mind. I was always transcribing the stuff. And then my my goal is of course at the end I would have like a kind of like final digital project object as and I'm like, hey, this summarizes the work that is this this season. And it turned out that instead of what I initially had planned, which was a an online archive where everything would be all in one place and the transcripts would be available and everything would be sort of coded and it have like the recommendations and reading lists and stuff. It was a an open educational resource book, like a an OER book that mm-hmm. was published in my library at MSU. And you know, and that and, and part of the thing is like I wanted a sum a summative object. Like a point people do like, hey, this is this is the the end result of that cycle of reframing history. And so that's that's what it that's what it came up to. And that's how I that's why I did it the way I did it. Awesome. Definitely a shout out to Dr. Casanello and Holly Baker. Um, two of that also inspired me um in doing what I'm doing now. And obviously I'm doing it because I also agree with what you were saying, how it's another way for his history students like myself or historians like yourself to continue that dialogue between academia and the public, you know, that often gets lost or mistranslated. And I think podcasting is a very powerful medium for that to succeed and keep going. So yeah. Awesome. Are you currently working on, or do you have any, you know, any future podcast shows on your mind? Oh yeah. I I do a podcast now as part of the, I run the graphic possibilities, which is a comic research workshop. At MSU. So we have a podcast called the Graphic Possibility Podcast. Okay. And 
Yeah, episode just, I just said, I know it because I set it up, uh, episode just released Friday. Nice. Like the new season, right? Uh-huh. And and this season is all about Afrofuturism, actually. So, uh, and I do that with my, my, my graduate students, co-leads, uh, Nicole Huff and Sinclair Portis. And so that's a project of the research workshop. Nice. And I am going to get back to reframing history. I'm just going to change the name. I'm just, right now, I'm sort of debating what is going to be like the theme, mm-hmm. right? Um, I had I had an idea in my head. And I'm like, ah, no, I don't really have time to pursue that idea. But eventually I will get back to reframing. And I'm going to just, I'm going to change the name. It's funny because like I, my degree is in history and now I work in the English department and it's super confusing sometimes. Yeah. So I'm just going to like change the name of the podcast to reframing. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, then, and then I'll just, Whatever I want to reframe, I'll reframe. Reframe exactly, and then I'm just gonna walk away, and no one can ask me like, "But you're in the, you're in the English department yeah. now." Like, eh, how'd that work? Like, yeah. eh, leave me alone. Right? Yeah. Leave me alone. <laughs> yeah, that when I was first in contact with you, I was like, "Wait, is he a history professor or right. English professor?" Right. Yeah, so yeah, it yeah. definitely it, could be. It, cool. it causes people some concern. Right? Yeah. yeah, similar to the podcasting questions, I'd be remiss not to ask you at least. One question about your work on comics and superheroes, because you were mentioning earlier, and I told you I think that's absolutely fascinating. So on that note, as I was doing research on you and your career, which, by the way, your website was a very useful source, so <laughs> kudos to you. It's important to have an act, a professional slash personal website, and yours is really effective, so <laughs> kudos. But in the homepage of your website, which I will include it, um, I'll include the link to it and the two podcast shows that we we're talking about. Also, your new one, Graphics Possi- Graphic, Graphic Possibilities. In the homepage of the, of the website, you state, quote, from pulp magazine origins to recent cinematic triumphs, superheroes mirror our culture. Uniquely American and reflecting enduring values, these characters are a window on inspiration and aspiration defining our society, end quote. Everyone that knows me personally knows that I'm probably like the biggest Marvel Cinematic Universe nerd out there. I love Marvel. (laughs) I love the characters, the stories, the themes behind them. So I find that quote and your, you know, your broader work on comics and superheroes incredible. So can you please talk to us a little bit? Well, talk to us, but me a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah, I, you know, I I teach about comics, and my one of my recent books about twenty eighteen was uh, some of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I'm actually starting to work on another one of those because now as enough time has passed, and we're like, yeah, we can do another one. Yeah. Like that, a lot a lot of stuff has happened now, mm-hmm. uh, and obviously, you know, in terms of Afrofuturism, Black Panther is a huge thing. So comics are in print form, and now of course in cinematic form. You know, they're archive of the American experience. And I mean archive in a very literal way because uh, comics in particular start with the sort of transformation of the United States to a war of power mm-hmm. in the late 19th century, right? So what you're seeing in newspaper strips is, you know, really at some level, Americans processing the yeah. rapid transformation mm-hmm. that they're experiencing, right? And, you know, there's a great comic scholar named Ian Gordon who talks about comic strips Usually, become a strip is human-based responses to a modern modernization, and so you know the the sort of caricatures that are presented in newspaper comic, the stories that are there, the sort of story genres that are there, they, they represent like you know a very important way where like a kind of commercial industrial order that is recontin you know, re- rearranging the American experience is being codified and and explained to people right there. They're negotiating 
you know, immigrants coming in and a new consumer culture and like products and like, you know, a, a very different world through that, through that imagery. Right? right. And you don't need to necessarily need to, you know, speak English to understand some of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when you get the comic book, you know, comic books are again, a huge sort of like leap forward in terms of like market commercialization, uh, comic strip, you know, comic books are really, you know, initially just combining those scripts into that, that format. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they become a, a way for Americans to think about and, and really mediate, you know, mediate on what are the values that matter? Like, you know, superheroes are, are an American construct. They are, they are, they are, they are a product of the United States and they really represent characters that embody like American values. Mm-hmm. But it really in an aspirational way, right? Like they're 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 trans they're translating what Americans want to believe about themselves in the face of like a rapidly changing world, mm-hmm. right? So even when you think about a character like Superman or you think about a character like Batman, those characters are Superman is like an immigrant story, like he's an alien, mm-hmm. and it, yep. and he's an immigrant alien, and like that's what they call the immigrants. They call yeah. them alien, yep, right? And so, so you know he he's a positive immigrant alien story, right? Like right. he's a he's a he's a person who's using his alien traits and his understanding is you know imbibing imbibing of American values to make the country better, right? Right? Like it's not you know in some ways it's it's, it's hyper simplistic, mm-hmm. but it's also bombastic and and incredibly aspirational. Like you know this person with so much power really embodies the kind of unlimited potential mm-hmm. that a lot of people saw in the United States. But at the same time, you know fear and anxiety associated with the urban environment that's batman right like yep. we all worry about the danger represented by moving from relatively small homogeneous communities to very big very heterogeneous you know dynamic spaces where your your neighbors don't know you and if you call for help they may not come right but you know batman is the neighbor that you want like if you call for help he's going to come mm-hmm. and he's going to not just He's going to help you. He's not going to victimize you, right? Like he's mm-hmm. working in a kind of like pro-social manner to to ensure your individual safety and, and at some level the safety of the community. And those are incredibly positive ideas, right? Like they're not in any way cynical. Like they're mm-hmm. aspirational ideas that Americans want to believe in their hearts that are at the core right. of what it means to be American, mm-hmm. right? And you know, as as that genre, the comic genre evolves, you get more and more characters that are mediations and reflections on the American experience. And they're trying to give, they're telling stories that try to give Americans a space to reconcile, you know, these are the value statements that we believe we hold true, but these are the circumstances that we're trying to, to work those value statements through. They don't always match up. And so like, there's a, there's a struggle here, right? Like you, you want, in, in those stories and in, in comic book stories, one of the things that happens is that people are, are reassured that the values they believe can still matter in a world that's rapidly changing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, every time you get a different sort of iteration and, and breakthrough in that job, it really is, I would argue, at some level, a moment where a kind of baseline acceptance is, has been articulated uh, in society. So, like, you, you don't get uh, black superheroes 1954 when you get the desegregation. You get in 1966 with Black Panther, black, yep. right? So it's like, well, this is like 11 years later. But, like, at that point, you know, what had happened? You had gone through, yeah, they said desegregate, but you had gone through massive resistance. You had gone through sit-ins. You had gone mm-hmm. through Freedom Rise. You had gone through, and you had just gotten, like, Civil Rights Act of 1964, Voting Rights Act of 1965. You got a lot of stuff. And like, you know, what those, what all that stuff has done is like, 
it hammered home in people's head, like, oh, yeah, civil rights is a thing. Like, black people just deserve civil rights. And so, mm-hmm. now, okay, now you can have a black superhero. Even though, like, at the time, that's really shocking to people, it, it, it's not really shocking because what, what it tells you is, like, you know, this society has made a turn. Even today when people are like bitching and moaning about like diversity in comic, like, you know, you can you can think of like, oh, they're really re- regressive. But the fact of the matter is, is that the fact they have those characters to bitch and moan about sells you something about the nature of like right. culture, right? Yeah, like, exactly. you know, like, you know, oh, you know, Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. Moon Girl is the smartest person in our universe. A black girl, really? Right, yeah. Yeah. Now, 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 what? Like, what are you gonna do, right? Like, you know, mm-hmm. maybe you're gonna be okay with that. Maybe you, you, you're gonna start reading comic. But everyone else who ain't never read anything is gonna come. Like, oh yeah, this black girl's the smartest person in the Marvel universe. Okay, they're not, they're not gonna struggle with that. They're gonna be like, all right, well, Riri Williams is smarter than Tony Stark. Yeah, they really? Oh, okay, well, okay. Well. And they're gonna, be, they're yeah. gonna be okay with it. They're gonna move on. Like you know, so we got our other talents, right? Like you know, we were here. Let's get this. Let's get it you know, this is in a a video podcast, and I I say this whenever I'm vigorously nodding. But during that whole answer, of, uh, <laughs> I was just for the listeners to see. I'm just yeah, that that was awesome. And we'll leave it at that because I don't. That could be a whole other episode, hopefully in the future, <laughs> that I could do with you because that that that's so fascinating to me. All right, but before you go. These are short questions. Okay. Favorite comic book character? My favorite comic book character is Iron Man. Okay. Yeah. My second favorite comic book character is probably Black Panther, okay. but my favorite comic book character is Iron Man. Okay. Like, if you were to ask me as a kid, who's your favorite comic book character? I would say Iron Man. Uh-huh. Like, I've always been a big fan of Iron Man. Uh, but no, I, I love Black Panther. I love, like, Daredevil. I've mm-hmm. always loved Daredevil. Daredevil, yep. Uh, I like the Avengers. I always, I, I, if you were like, what was I collected as a kid? Mm-hmm. I was collecting Avengers. Nice. My first comic was actually Teen Titans, Marvel Wolfman, and Teen Titans with Robin, That's Cyborg, awesome. Raven. Yeah. Yeah, that was the first comic. I, that's the first thing I remember reading Teen Titans. <laughs> like, like, I was just being like, what was the first thing you ever read Teen Titans? Favorite comic book run? Hmm. Wow, well, that's a really good question. Damn. Huh, that's a really... You know what? Christopher Priest's run on Black Panther. Okay. That is a classic. Okay. What year did that come out? That is 1998 to like 2002, okay. 2003. Favorite MCU movie? <laughs> I got it. All right. So the best, this is a really hard question, but uh, I I don't think it's, it'd be very hard for anyone to argue. Of course, someone's going to argue with me, but um. <laughs> Captain America: Winter Soldier. Okay, that is a cl- that oh, that yes. is like yes. You can't That's you can't not yes. You can't you can't fault that yes. You can't really fault. I mean, I'm sure, sure, but yeah. you can't from beginning to end. That, I'm that- like. That's yeah. how I know you're 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 a true comic book <laughs> fan, a Marvel fan, because that's. I mean, my favorite MCU movie is the first Avengers, but that's purely like a nostalgia. Right. So the thing is, like, of course, Black Panther, the first Black Panther is like transformative, but it's almost off on its own world. Mm -hmm. Like, so it's like of the MCU movies that are sort of like in 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 the in the thing. Uh You like Black Panther is it's it's on it's a different planet. Yeah. It's amazing, right? I I love it. Like I I see it all. I watch it all the time. Mm -hmm. But if you're like in the middle of all of that, I mean, the first Iron Man's amazing. I love it. I mm-hmm. watched that a lot. But Captain America Winter Soldier is yes. like, yes. 
Like, so, like, it's wait, a, what? What is going to yeah. happen? Like, okay. Like, it's just so perfect yes. in terms of the MCU in a way that it's hard for me to be like, you can't. Yeah. If you're going to watch one, I mean, you can't really watch one. But, like, that one is so well put together. Yes. It's, and it's inspired by Three Days of the Condor and things like mm-hmm. that. I mean, like, I'm like, you know, it's like, it's so good. And, like, you know, Nick Fury's in it. I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's not that's not a fair question. It's not. It really uh, isn't. But I had to ask you it. No, but I, mean, I actually love uh, <laughs> the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, the, the yeah, Disney Plus the Disney series. Plus show, yeah, that I was like the kick, that was kick ass. Yeah. Like that was really good. Yeah. Like that was really good. Yeah. I mean, like if you, you know, again, it did so much yeah. and and with characters and and so I was like, oh, that's really good. And it will never get the the level of love or something like Wonder Vision, but right. but but it was really really good. Yeah, it was for sure. I I man, but Winter Soldier. I'm glad you said that because it's a lot of people don't have it in their their top tier list. But that movie is so oh, that, that masterpiece really, yeah. from beginning to end. Favorite MCU moment? Huh. Um, I think when when. When Robin Downey Jr. says, I'm Iron Man, yeah. and he snaps. Mm-hmm. Like, that, because that's a culmination of, like, years of years. work. yep. Right? And at some level, you know, it's it's kind of a, um, it's an emotional manipulation, but it's, like, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's so much. The other one is, like, I think, you know, Iron Man is a, a really important film. Like, if that mm-hmm. didn't work, there would be no MCU. No. And so the, the, the sequence in the lab where he's learning how to fly mm-hmm. is like really iconic to yeah. me because like we're also learning as the audience like yeah can i buy into this yes and everything about that film married sort of like practical effects yes. and digital effects yes. in a way that were very sophisticated so mm-hmm. it really it bridged the uncanny valley in, yep. a, in a very real way. So people really believed mm-hmm. that there was a guy in that suit. Yep. Right? Like, and and it, and it was part of it was because, like, you know, they saw these little things where, like, oh, yeah, he's he's got this thing and, like, yeah. it opens this way and, and he's the, got it. And, the, the, like, the, the screws are tied yeah, this screws, way. Yeah, 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 right. Like, and it's very tactile. Yeah, yep, and, like, yep. you just don't think. And then when he's, you know, Walking, walking, and, and when he's trying to fly, and he's clunky, trying to blind. Yeah. You know, he's trying to balance everything out, and it's very real. Mm-hmm. It feels very real. It feels very practical, and so it's like you know that scene carries so much. Yep. And it, you know, it's, you know, and it really tapped into like a kind of like American techno culture. Mm-hmm. You know, love and, mm-hmm. and aspirational things. So like, yeah, I actually think that that you know, if you were gonna deconstruct sequences like that's a sequence that really matters to MCU. Yeah. And, yeah. One hundred percent. Yeah, I um, I actually when it got to Infinity War and Endgame, I, I did think I was like, I, I missed the the old Iron Man suit. You know, he had the nanotech. It looked obviously it doesn't look as real. It's a lot of CGI. So then I was thinking, man, the original Iron Man suits from his first two movies were I missed it because yeah. like, again, what you were saying. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy itinerary here in Orlando. <laughs> I know you've been a busy man these past couple of days. So yeah. I, I really appreciate you taking the time and doing this podcast with me. The work you've done in your career as a historian and as an interdisciplinary scholar is truly inspiring for someone like me who aspires to be an historian that wears a lot of different hats like you do. So um, thank you so much, Dr. Chamless. And I hope to have you back on this podcast at least for sure next year for 2024 yeah, sure. Zora yeah, yeah. and then maybe a, a comic book episode. Um, but yeah, thank you, Dr. Chambliss. Appreciate it. Yeah, no, thanks a lot for inviting me. And um, thank you to the listeners for the night's cast. Like, you know, UCF Public History Program does a lot of great work. So happy to sit down and talk to you about the 
key work that UCF does and, you know, faculty like Scott French and Robert Castanello and the graduate students like, you know, Holly Baker and Brandon Nightingale. I mean, they, they, there's been a lot of great work done sort of documenting Central Florida by by UCF. And so it's there's always, you know, always a lot, lot to learn um, thanks to the, those efforts. So I really appreciate that. That was the pod. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it from Afrofuturism and its practice, its academic context, its philosophy, its thematic subjects, to his experiences with podcasting and why it's a valuable medium for historians, to his work on comics. I mean, we talked about it all and I hope you all enjoyed it. I certainly did. Please subscribe to this podcast feed to hear future conversations about history. I'm Sebastian Garcia. Thank you all for listening. I very much appreciate it. 